A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine, discuss diplomatic and political updates from around the world, and we speak to charity worker Ada Wordsworth, who helps eastern Ukrainian villagers recover after occupation and bombardment. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom, with our teams reporting on the ground, to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 24th of November, one year and 273 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, and our guest is Ada Wordsworth, co-founder of HARP, a grassroots charity focused on reconstruction in the deoccupied areas of eastern Ukraine. I started by going through updates from the ground. Let's start with military news then from Ukraine. Three Ukrainian civilians have reportedly been killed in a Russian cluster bomb attack on the southern city of Kherson. Five others were wounded and 60 buildings were damaged during the daylight attack in the city's Chornobyvka suburb yesterday. This is coming from Interior Minister Ihor Klimenko. Andrei Yermak, Vladimir Zelensky's chief of staff, said it is preliminarily known that the shelling was carried out with cluster munitions. Just to remind ourselves, cluster munitions are a type of bomb that opens in the air, releasing smaller bomblets across a very wide area. They are used both by Russia and Ukraine, the latter having received them as military aid from the United States. This all comes as the Ukrainian army said last Last week, it had gained multiple bridgeheads on the left bank of the river in the south. Moving on, for months now, the Ukrainian army has been striking Russian targets miles behind the front lines. Now, Britain's Ministry of Defence has said that these long-range uh, missile strikes are causing, quote, mass casualties, end quote, among Russian soldiers. In its latest intelligence briefing, the MOD said Ukraine's ability to strike deep behind enemy lines was creating an acute dilemma for Russian commanders. Uh, they go on to say they must balance the best practice of keeping the troops dispersed and less vulnerable to strikes and the day-to-day requirement, gathering units together to conduct administration and to maintain morale. Yesterday, we also received more information about some of the bloody fighting around Avdivka as Russia throws waves of soldiers at the city in the east. This is a quote from Alexandra, deputy battalion commander in Ukraine's 47th Mechanized Brigade. He told AFP, the fields are just littered with corpses. They are trying to exhaust our lines with constant waves of attacks. The Russian army has now switched to infantry tactics, he said, advancing slowly at the expense of human resources. Some die, others keep on coming. It's like a zombie movie, added a drone operator who goes by the call sign Trauma. Just some context here. On Thursday, Ukraine said it had repelled 30 separate Russian attacks around the city in the past 24 hours. And Russia's relentless attacks to capture Avdivka, of course, make us think of its uh, its, its conquest of Bakhmut earlier this year, where 20,000 Russian soldiers were said to have died. Going to the drone war, Russia's defense ministry has said that its forces shot down 16 Ukrainian drones overnight as they flew over occupied Crimea and Russia's southwestern Volgograd region. It said that 13 of those were operating over Crimea as Ukraine attempts to continue to ramp up its operations over the occupied peninsula. Ukraine, for its part, Ukraine said it downed three Iranian-designed Shahid attack drones overnight and it also said Russia launched two air missiles but did not say if they'd shot them down. Finally, before we go to Francis, Germany's ambassador to Ukraine has said that Germany will deliver Patriot anti-air missiles, quote, this winter. Martin Jaeger told Ukraine's state press agency the delivery is intended to alleviate the very difficult winter the country is facing. 
Chancellor Olaf Scholz, if we remember, originally pledged to deliver the surface-to-air missile system in October, but did not specify a timeline. Of course, the context here is that Russia is expected to launch a major bombardment of Ukraine's energy grid and infrastructure this winter, just as it did last year. Well, those are the military updates. Francis, can I come to you for updates in the diplomatic and political spheres? Thanks, David. It will come as no surprise to listeners the degree to which Putin has sought to exploit the war still ongoing between Israel and Hamas to undermine Western support for Ukraine, perhaps most notably in the context of those UN votes we've already discussed, and also its decision to invite representatives of Hamas to Moscow a couple of weeks back. Now, the ISW have been monitoring this, as have we, and they agree with us that the Russian president has changed his rhetoric on the war in Gaza to a much more anti-Israel position. And that's a direct quote from the ISW, especially by attempting to push the supposed hypocrisy of Western condemnations of the invasion of Ukraine by highlighting the West's support for Israel. Only on Wednesday, Putin referred to what he called the extermination of the civilian population of Palestine, something he uses to appeal to Arab nations and also to certain groups within Western countries. He hopes and indeed has said that the conflict will distract from the provision of Western military aid to Ukraine. And that task of his is ongoing to a degree, of course, It has, especially in the United States. And yet in Europe, the focus on Ukraine has remained broadly pretty consistent, I would argue, at least as far as leaders and diplomats are concerned. It is worth bearing in mind that by many accounts, the conflict in Gaza is past the fiercest point of fighting. And when that happens, perhaps focus will return back to Ukraine, especially if something noteworthy happens that draws the headlines. But staying in Europe, I was very struck by NATO's logistics chief backing a military Schengen zone, to use his term, to make troop movements easier within the alliance. To those listeners who aren't familiar, Schengen is the agreement between many countries of the EU that allows people and goods to pass freely between countries without passport or other controls. It's not without controversy. So this is a plan to smoothen out the means for troops to travel between countries in the event of a war with Russia. And the reason I find this so interesting is that at least two generals that we've interviewed on the podcast now, Ben Hodges and James Dubik, both interviews I'd highly recommend listening to if you haven't, were, when asked about their biggest concerns with regard to NATO operational strength, said that logistics... And the practical transportation of troops and weaponry in the worst case scenario, how one could actually get them from one place to another quickly, was a paramount concern. Evidently, the alliance has woken up to this. And it reminds me of AJP Taylor's famous essay on the First World War called War by Timetable, which gave particular focus to just how important those processes can be. And indeed, he actually went one further and argued how the war was the result, arguably, of a complex mechanism of rigid military timetables and pre-existing mobilisation plans, as opposed to active decisions by statesmen. I'm not necessarily going that far, and I'm not saying that that would be a danger in this context, but only to stress the importance of logistical concerns in war, something we've discussed again and again. It's often logistics that wins out in the end. And it's something I'll return to again in my final thought, albeit in a slightly different historical context. Now, unsurprisingly, the Kremlin has been swift to condemn this plan, saying the alliance has always regarded our country as a so-called notional enemy. And it now openly considers our country to be an obvious adversary. This is nothing more than fueling tensions in Europe, which has consequences. No mention of the fact, of course, that it was Russia that launched an illegal, unprovoked war on NATO's doorstep. But no surprises there. Now, staying on European responses to this war, on the energy front, we've already reported this week that Italy and Germany are set to build a gas and hydrogen pipeline across the Alps in a bid to shore up energy supplies in the wake of the war. That's really significant and is an example of the long-term, likely irreversible 
changes triggered by this war, and I don't mean irreversible in the sense of this specific pipeline, but in terms of the trends and the way in which countries are now viewing Russia on the energy front versus building a stronger alliance within NATO-supporting, Western-supporting countries. More concerning for Ukraine in that sort of infrastructure context, though, is that reportedly Russia and China have secretly been discussing building an underwater tunnel between occupied Crimea and the Russian mainland. That's what the Washington Post are reporting. They're saying that the Ukrainian Secret Service has intercepted messages between companies in the two countries about this potential project. It's believed that the talks were triggered by Russian fears of new Ukrainian strikes on the Kerch Bridge, which links Crimea to mainland Russia and, of course, has been struck uh, twice now significantly and with all sorts of serious ramifications for the Russian war effort and particularly for civilians too trying to travel to Crimea. It speaks to the long-term ambitions of Russia for Crimea and also the degree of potential Chinese complicity in what Russia is doing. But I'm not certain Beijing will want to be associated with this openly. So it'll be interesting to see if they disavow the reports. Politically, of course, this project will underline the degree to which Russia is bedded in in Crimea, making it harder some would argue, to support Kyiv's desire to restore their territory. Now, lastly, turning to Russia specifically and the subject of its economy. The chief investment officer of Europe's largest fund manager has said that Russia's economy will grow three times faster than the Eurozone in 2024 because of ineffective Western sanctions. So he said that he expects Russia's gross domestic product to grow by 1.5% in 2024 and 2% in 2025, compared with the Eurozone's 0.5% and 1.2% respectively. He said the West needed to accept a reality check that sanctions have not been effective in hamstringing the Russian economy. Now, Russia is also claiming to have sold more than 99% of its oil for more than the Western imposed price cap of $60 per barrel. But that is very hard to verify. And indeed, I would say on all of this, any claims about the strength or otherwise of the Russian economy is hard to verify, as it relies on figures published by bodies controlled by the Kremlin. Evidently, sanctions have not been as crippling as many expected. But neither can we only describe this economy as healthy. One need only look at those polls of Russians increasingly anxious on this subject to see that it is at least a concern for ordinary people in the country. War is extremely expensive and there are signs of the economy fraying in certain areas, but not across the board. But given this subject's importance, we will, of course, do another deep dive with members of the economics department here very soon. But I think we need to be very cautious when we reach definitive remarks, conclusions such as that of Europe's largest fund manager on exactly the reality of the health of the Russian economy, because there are so many conflicting reports about that. And as I say, if one looks at what people are actually saying in Russia, it is clearly perhaps more of a concern than you might think based on the top line figures we get from the Kremlin. But that's where we are in the political realm, David. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. Let's then go to our guest, Ada Wordsworth. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, We introduced you briefly, of course, at the top of the podcast, but would you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and what drew you to study Russian, Ukrainian, and a bit about your work at the moment? Hi, yes, thank you both so much for having me on the podcast. So, yeah, so I started studying Russian for my undergraduate degree back in 2017. I was drawn to it basically just by the literature in a very kind of unoriginal way and continued on with Russian onto a master's, which I began in September 2021. Halfway through that master's, obviously the full-scale war was launched and I was, I remember waking up on the 24th of February and seeing the news that the full-scale war was launched and just having a complete existential crisis, just realising that I can't keep studying Russian, I can't keep writing about Russian literature. You know, the world is a very different place to what it was last night. And so I basically that day booked a ticket to the Polish-Ukrainian border and just decided to pause my master's and 
go out and try to help as much as I could with the refugee crisis and try and put the Russian language skills that I had accumulated to good use, helping refugees from eastern Ukraine who were obviously predominantly Russian speakers to enter Europe to find somewhere to live. I then, when I was on the border, met up with a group of other Brits, all also with kind of academic backgrounds in Russian, who all have had the same idea as me. And together we formed a charity, we formed HARP. And we were originally just working on the border, doing this refugee support, trying to bring more volunteers with language skills over from the UK. And then we ultimately started working in Kharkiv and moved to working entirely in Kharkiv last autumn, working on reconstruction after the oblast was liberated. And yeah, and since then, that's just what we've continued to do to expand the reconstruction program, working in deoccupied and former frontline villages. I then briefly returned to the UK to finish my master's this summer after my university very kindly said that I could switch from Russian to Ukrainian. And yeah, so we just continue. And since then, we've just been continuing our work, continuing rebuilding and trying to provide kind of long-term support in deoccupied villages close to the Russian border where very little other kind of support gets through in terms of kind of food packages, but long-term support in terms of infrastructural support and rebuilding doesn't tend to reach these areas. And so we're trying to fill those gaps. Well, thank you so much for that overview, Ada. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to um, the language learning um, stuff you've talked about. That's absolutely fascinating. But could you tell us more about the charity? When you talk about reconstruction and rebuilding, talk us through what a what what kind of things your groups do in these villages. What are they building? What What are the needs and what are the challenges? Yeah, so in these villages, you have a kind of variety of levels of damage. So villages which were actually occupied by the Russian forces tend to have less damage because it was Ukraine which was shelling them. And, you know, it's not in Ukraine's interest to destroy its villages. And so it will be minimal damage there just in areas where Russian soldiers were living. But areas which were on the other side of the front line, which never went under Russian occupation, but were being consistently shelled by Russia, you're looking at up to 90% of homes damaged or destroyed. We're not in a position to fully rebuild a home, unfortunately. We just don't have that kind of funding. We're a very small grassroots charity. But what we can do is make a building livable in if the structure is still in place. And so replacing windows, replacing doors, fixing roofs, buying boilers, all the things you need to basically seal a property and make it somewhere people can live. Because I think there's generally a misconception that in these deoccupied former frontline villages, there aren't people living there anymore. And this is even a misconception within Ukraine that people will assume that if you're in a village five kilometers from the Russian border, of course, no one will still be living there. But there are people in every village and people continue to live there without roofs, without windows, without heating or electricity. And so that's where we see our role as coming in and making sure that the people who are still living in these villages, if they've managed to survive occupation or to survive being on the front line, they're not going to be killed by cold. We do this pretty much entirely by working with local contractors, local workmen, making sure that everything is also locally sourced, because the way we see it, reconstruction isn't just the physical rebuilding of the home, but it's also reconstructing the community, getting some money back in, getting the economy going, making it, creating a situation where the local shop can reopen because there are enough people in the village who have some kind of salary that they can go and they can buy their bread from the local shop and not be entirely reliant on aid. And so our work, I guess, is trying to rebuild these villages on a number of levels, both the physical rebuilding, but also some kind of economic rebuilding. Ada, would you talk us through some of the people you've met doing this? Um, You mentioned the people that live in these villages. Who are they? What are their stories? What stands out to you in in the time that you've spent in the eastern Ukraine? I mean, I feel like I've been so blessed over the last kind of year and a half working in Ukraine to meet just the most astounding people who, you know, both people, when I was working with refugees, people leaving Ukraine, but also in Kharkiv, people who refused to leave. And so some of the people I've met, for example, stayed in their villages under occupation, under shelling, and you'll ask them why they did that. And their answer is always the same. It's always, well, this is my land. And I remember speaking to one woman in a deoccupied village who talked about the fact that she realised that 
if she left, then the only people in the village would be the Russian soldiers. And at that point, it would become a Russian village. And so she saw it as her duty to, to Ukraine to stay in this village and make sure there was always a Ukrainian there. Um, some of the other people who I think are just astounding who I've met tend to be the people who are part of the local administration in these villages. In one village called Malipurhadi, which is just north of Kharkiv, it's about eight kilometers south of the Russian border. The head of that village administration is a man called Alexander. When they were occupied on the first day of war, he was captured. He was held in his own basement and tortured and eventually managed to escape and escape through Russia, had to stop in Russia and work for two months to raise the rest of the money to get to Europe and then get to raise enough money to get to Germany, got to Germany and had to stop there again and work as a delivery driver for two months to raise enough money to make the rest of the journey back. And by the time he got back to Kharkiv, his village had been liberated and he just got straight back to work, got straight back to work in supporting other residents who stayed in beginning the rebuilding process and it's just it's this tenacity of spirit that he could have stayed in germany he could have stayed in russia but he decided to go back to the site where he was tortured in order to support the residents who were relying on him and i just think that it's endlessly inspiring working in ukraine and especially just working in these small rural villages which don't get the big acclaim they don't get the big attention but they are the people who have spent most time on the front line and who are really living every day, showing what victory really means, I think, in a way. Ada, that's fascinating. Would you, if possible, would you tell us a little bit, a little bit about your most recent trip out there? If I understand it correctly, you've been out very recently, is that right? Yeah, so I was out and I got back a couple of days ago. And so when I was there last week in Kharkiv, I was going around the villages that we work in, just checking on work, making sure that everything is running smoothly. And it was, you know, it's it's a lot of very mixed emotions because on the one hand, going into this one village, Latina, which is the main, the village where we've done the, the bulk of our work, I was overwhelmed with happiness going there because you look around this village, which when we first went there a bit over a year ago, when it was first possible to go there, there was about 200 residents um, out of 6,000 as a pre-war population. Pretty much every house was either destroyed or damaged. It was completely silent. There was no electricity. And driving in this time, you have about half the houses which were damaged have started to have repairs being done. There's now a population of 2,000. So it's not nearly the 6,000 it was before the war, but it's still a lot better than the 200 it was a year ago. And it really feels like there's hope coming back to this village and people are trying to make a life there again. And it's coming back to life in a way which I think very few people anticipated that these villages close to the Russian border would be able to do. But on the other hand, it's also continues to be incredibly bleak because all the same conversations that I was having with people in these villages a year ago about their worries, about their fears for the winter, about their fears of the Russians coming back. It's still the same conversations now. I don't think that anyone thought last year in these particular villages that the war would still be going on after another year because they'd had this massive victory there. And I think people really believe that they were on the kind of home run for the war ending. And so, you know, it's very, it's very mixed emotions in these villages. And whilst things are in some ways getting a lot better, in other ways, the work is just continuing to increase. Partially because part of the... It's amazing that 2,000 people have returned, but it also means that that is 2,000 more households which need repairs done. And so the work just keeps growing and growing. Well, let's talk a bit more about that then. Could you describe to us the kind of challenges you find as as a charity working in the eastern Ukraine? And maybe also be interesting to know how you go about raising the the money to do your work. And I guess the sort of the really sad question there is, I mean, from your perspective, do you think it's got harder to raise money recently? We've talked a lot this autumn and winter about the sort of the war fatigue amongst either nations close to Ukraine or around Europe, around the world. Is that something you see in your work as well? Yeah, it really unfortunately is. I we are still we're still going, we're still getting donations, but the situation that we had last winter where you know, we were just 
receiving so much support constantly definitely isn't the same now. It's a lot more work now to get donations. We still predominantly get donations from individuals in the UK, from charitable trusts, from corporations in the UK. You know, it's still very, it's not grant based. It's much more word of mouth. And that is definitely becoming harder. But I, having said that, it's not as hard as I might have expected a year ago. I think there is still a lot of care which comes from the UK towards Ukraine and people do still want to help. And that's really wonderful to see. But yes, it definitely is a lot less than last year. And that's something which is very difficult to explain to people in these villages, to the local administration who now this year have massive expectations of what we're able to provide for them. Because so I'll say, you know, that this time last year you did, you repaired 200 houses in our village. So will you do the same this year? And so, well, this year we can maybe do 30 which is better than nothing, but it's not the 200. And so it's difficult. And I would say that that has been the main struggle. The main struggle has been trying to get sustainable funding, trying to keep people's attention on this issue when there are so many other things going on around the world. The other issues, practical issues that we've had within the villages have just been things like last year when there were massive electricity strikes, it made it very difficult to have windows produced because none of the factories were operating. Um, but that's part and parcel of war and everyone could deal with that. And that was slightly easier to deal with than the lack of funding. Um, because there was, when there were the electricity strikes, people had the will to get the electricity going again, to start producing these windows again. Whereas with the lack of funding, it's slightly more of a dead end. Ada, can we talk a little bit about winter? It's something we've mentioned, and usually when we talk about it at the top of the podcast, it's in the military context of you know, everything is frozen, um, activity, military activity usually starts to slow down, if not cease completely. And of, of course, there's been many debates and thoughts about what might happen this winter. Will the tempo of, of raids, strikes and campaigns and so on carry on and will it reduce? When you were there in, in Kharkiv in the east in the past few weeks, did you see the onset of winter in Ukraine? And can you give our listeners a, a sense of what that's actually like to go through it? Yeah, so as as I was leaving this week, the first snowfall came to Kharkiv. And so that was very much the start of it. Um, but I mean, I'll give an example from last year, which was uh, last year, we, when we originally started our repairs program, um, myself and my co-director would go to every single house we had a request from, um, and scout it out because we were very new. We didn't really know what we were doing. And so we wanted to make sure that everything was by the book. Um, and having, I was felt like I was very well equipped for winter, for a Ukrainian winter. I'd lived in Moscow before. And so I had my big coat and my big shoes. And even then spending all day, every day for several weeks in people's homes, this is theoretically inside, but in people's homes without windows, without roofs, without heating, I got such bad cold on my feet that I was unable to walk for four days. And that was from being inside people's homes. And these are homes that people continue to live in. And so I think that it's difficult from the UK where we have quite mild winters to envision quite how cold it gets in eastern Ukraine. But the winter is freezing and the winter is long. And surviving these winters without windows, especially in these villages, which even aside from whether Russia launches infrastructure attacks again, most of these villages still don't have electricity or heating anyway. The, their electricity and heating was destroyed at the start of the war and hasn't come back yet. And so the people, all they really have is their home to protect them. And if their home stops being able to protect them, if their home isn't properly sealed, then people will die of cold. And it's not an exaggeration. It's something that happens. It's something that happened last year. And it's something that will happen this year if people don't act and try and get these homes sealed as quickly as possible. Ada, thinking back on your, your travels across Ukraine and the East, what moments, what people really s sort of stick with you? I mean, if you were to, if, if, if you had just a few minutes to, to tell somebody about one experience that you've had, what would you think from your perspective would be the most impactful moment? Um, so last year, I met a woman called Helena in, in the village Latina, and she hadn't she didn't have a phone she hadn't been able to contact us to ask for help and so her neighbor who had been able to contact us asked us if we would go to her house and see how she was living and see what we could do to help we arrived at her very sweet cottage it was already quite heavy snow and 
once we got there, she when we entered the garden, we walked past a cross in the garden and we asked her what it was. And she said that it was her husband's body and he had died of a heart attack while the village was on the front line because he just couldn't, his heart couldn't take the shelling anymore. Because the village was on the front line, no one was able to collect his body. And she, this kind of 80-year-old woman by herself, had buried him in her garden. And he was still there six months later um his death won't be counted as a war casualty he won't go down as a civilian casualty because he died of a heart attack he didn't die from injuries which came from shelling which i think is a slightly separate issue but i always think is important to say that like civilian casualties are underestimated anyway but even more underestimated when you consider the number of people who've died from heart attacks as a result of shelling but this woman, Helena, was living in this house by herself with her dog and she had no window, she had no heating. And she told me that she had been born under Nazi occupation of the village. And she told me that her biggest fear was that she was born in war and she was going to die in war as well. And I mean, there's no there's no way to not make this story incredibly bleak because it is incredibly bleak. And there are thousands and thousands of people like her across eastern Ukraine who are still living like this. But she also, again, had just this amazing tenacity. And when we got windows installed for her and we came back a couple of weeks later, you know, it's immediately like got the kettle on and made borscht, which just wanted to entertain. And so that I don't know, I just think there's something there, there's something about the human ability to survive through these absolute horrors, which is puts everything into perspective, really. And, you know, there are, as I said, there are thousands of stories like this and thousands of amazing people, especially these Ukrainian grandmas who I've met who just show such strength to get through this absolute hell that they're living in. And still keep going and still keep showing, you know, the best hospitality that you'll find anywhere in the world, which, you know, makes the it's a lot of the time it's not fun work, volunteering and doing reconstruction. But it does really make it worth it when you meet people like that. Ada, thank you for sharing that story. Could you just fill out a little bit our understanding of your charity? How how many people are working there? What is everybody's role? Could you give us a sense of the size of it and and how many people are in, in country at any one time? Yeah, so we're very small. And so there are two of us who are working on it pretty much full time and then another another person who works part time and then we have several volunteers in the UK who help us with trying to collect money organizing fundraising doing that kind of bureaucracy and then within Ukraine we have people so we are all volunteers all the Brits involved are volunteers and then within Ukraine we employ people that's very much our policy that Ukrainians should not have to volunteer for a British charity they should be paid and so we also in Ukraine employ three different contractors and then brigades in several different villages who all work on the reconstruction in their own village so the idea there is that people it doesn't feel like we're just an international organization coming in and taking over we're allowing the locals to do the reconstructing themselves we're just providing the materials and then we're paying them to do that. Um, but yeah, very small team. And we, two of us were permanently or well, full-time based in Kharkiv until May. And then we now go back and forth. And so there's normally one of us will be in Ukraine or if not, then we have our contractors and our Ukrainian workers who are all continuing the work, whether or not we're there. But regardless of whether we're there, it's kind of all we're doing, whether it be remotely or on the ground. Ada, just one more question from me before I hand over to Francis. What's the reaction like? I mean, I followed volunteers across Ukraine and delivering aid and supplies. And it's always very interesting to see the interactions between the locals and the volunteers. Often there's a huge, I mean, not in your case, obviously, but often there's a huge language gap. And it's always interesting to sort of witness that, to see how these different cultures react. And sometimes there's a sense of almost complete amusement that people from the other end of Europe have travelled all all this way to help out. What's your experience been there? Just like, what's the reaction to your work? What's that been like? Yeah, the the bemusement is definitely there. And I think is maybe added to by the lack of language barriers. It's not only, this is very strange, you've come all the way from England to do these things, but it's also, and you're speaking 
in Ukrainian with a very strong English accent, which is not something that most people in Ukrainian villages have heard before. But generally, I think that because we have worked consistently in the same villages for a year now, in the same, well, in 18 villages overall, but specifically in the same five or six predominantly, we now just know people there very well. And so if we drive in, if they see a car with a British plate, they'll know that it's us. And it doesn't feel like we're outsiders anymore. It feels like we're really part of these communities. You know, I have people in these villages who I consider very close friends now. Who, When I was there last week, I, would, I will just go and have dinner with because they are just now my friends. And that's lovely. And I think that is a benefit of being able to work so closely in the same communities. I think there was also a lot of... There's a lot, definitely a lot of confusion and I think among especially older Ukrainian men when I come as a kind of younger British woman, there's perhaps some shame that they are relying on a young British woman to do this rebuilding for them, which I we try to mitigate through employing locals and all of those things that we do but it's definitely still there that people obviously have a lot of pride and being reliant on aid isn't nice for anyone which I think is why it's so important for aid groups to find more sustainable models to give more autonomy to these communities so that they're not having to rely on people who they don't know to do things for them. Ada, you know the culture very well, of course, but have there been any sort of moments of culture clash or even, even like amusing moments when you've realised something that maybe you didn't know about Ukrainian society and culture beforehand? I think the main culture clash has always come down to gender. Not that, I mean, Ukrainian city is obviously very progressive. And I've never had any issues in Kharkiv City or in Kiev or anywhere like that. But in these small rural villages... I think me being a woman, especially because I'm mostly traveling with men, has caused some kind of difficult interactions. I always remember when I would always put my hand out to shake people's hands when I first got there and look of kind of terror and shock in these men's eyes that, I, that they would be expected to shake my hand as well, because it's just not something that's done in these very rural areas. Um, but you know, I learned from that and I just don't offer my hand anymore because there's no point in trying to have some kind of political disagreement in these places. Um, But other than that, I think that the fact that myself and my colleagues all came from a background where we had studied Eastern Europe and former Soviet countries for a long time, we were quite prepared for what we were going in for. We'd been to these kinds of villages before, never in this particular situation but we understood what we were going in for i guess the other the only other thing has just been constant shock that i'm a vegetarian and kind of horror at it and people trying to slip meat into my food or say this isn't meat it's pork that's not real meat but other than that it's all been pretty smooth sailing in terms of culture clashes Thank you so much, Ada, for talking us through that. Francis, I know you've got a few questions. Thank you, Ada, for your time today. That description of the elderly lady burying her husband, I think, will stay with me and many listeners. I just wanted to start by asking, we've been reporting on this war now for almost two years. I can't believe I'm even saying that. You spoke about the acknowledgement in those villages, the shock at how long the war has lasted compared to perhaps what they expected. It seems, unfortunately, that the war still has a long way to go. Do you think they have a sense of how long they can keep going for? Or do they not set any time on it? Is it an acknowledgement of a way of life now? Or is there still an expectation that it could end in a shorter window than seems likely now? I think, unfortunately, there is now a general expectation that it's going to last for a very long time. That was definitely... The sense I got on my last trip was that everyone was speaking about this as a war which will last for several more years. And I do think people have accepted that to the extent that they can. But I had a very difficult conversation last week with a friend who is in her... 60s and she's got a kind of new baby grandchild and we were just having dinner and she suddenly burst into tears and said I just don't want my grandson to have to fight in this war 
and you know her grandson has won and so that is a, some kind of acknowledgement that the war is going to go on for kind of another 17 years which is yeah just kind of en- endlessly bleak and I think that people have given up hoping that things are going to end quickly and they're just grateful that where they are things are still peaceful that these areas of Kharkiv which were so badly damaged at the start of the war the the line has been held there and that's all people can really ask for is some kind of personal peace but yeah i think for for the most part there is an acceptance of a long war and that that feels new that definitely wasn't the case before the summer but now it's just an, yeah an atmosphere of acceptance extraordinary and I'm interested as to whether you register any animosity or frustration or even perhaps just a disconnect or maybe the complete reverse in some of these villages with regard to how they look at a city like Kiev and the political leadership. We talk in Britain and in America about disaffection with London or with Washington. Does that exist in these rural areas with regard to Kiev or is there a more positive, optimistic outlook about the way in which they're being led and towards the people there? Or is there a bit of a culture clash in that aspect too? Um, I think there are a couple of layers to it. I think generally Zelensky really is just very popular. People don't, people have criticism of him, but I think people do recognise that him staying in Ukraine at the start of the war was very important. More broadly, there is a big, there is big resentment towards Kiev and there's even big resentment towards Kharkiv. I think that there's big resentment towards anywhere which hasn't suffered that extent of destruction, which feels insane to say because we think of Kharkiv and we think of Kharkiv as a city which was on the front line and the city which suffered so much. But from the perspective of these villages where 90% of buildings are destroyed, they look at people in Kharkiv as having it good and what they'll consistently say is they don't know what war looks like, which is ridiculous because, of course, everyone in Ukraine knows what war looks like and everyone in Kharkiv knows what war looks like, definitely. But it is there is a growing resentment and there is a growing resentment at the ways that people feel that re- money for reconstruction isn't ending up with them that they look at how places like Butcher and Irpin, loads of international money has gone in to rebuild these towns and they're not seeing it. I don't know how true that is. I have no idea how much money is spent in each of these places, but the feeling is definitely there, whether or not it's valid. That's extremely interesting. Thank you. And also misconceptions. I wonder when you look at Western reporting on Ukraine, are there still any large-scale misconceptions of the country and perhaps the experience of this war that you've experienced? Because we're quite struck, I think, when we get new listeners who write in and they say, wow, I had no idea about this or in my country there's no reporting of this apart from the top lines. Just very on the ground in those places, what's your sense? Did anything surprise you based on perhaps the understanding you had prior to going, based on the reporting that you've seen in the Western press? I think what surprised me most was the extent to which, even in parts of eastern Ukraine, which have suffered a great deal because of war, things are still functioning. That even, you know, when I first went to Kharkiv, it was last June and Kharkiv was still being absolutely pummeled constantly. But most supermarkets were open and you could buy food. And in a lot of these villages, the village shop does reopen and it does function. The problem is people don't have money to spend there. And so I think maybe that is a misconception. People assume that because Ukraine is a country at war, nothing operates. But actually, for the most part, the issue is just poverty, which comes with war. And we found that a lot with 
doing rebuilding, we source all our materials in the Kharkiv region um, and try and do everything as local as possible. Um, and people are consistently surprised about this um, because they say that people seem to have this idea that you can't buy glass in Ukraine. And of course, there won't be anyone who can do the rebuilding. It's like, no, that Ukraine is still a functional society, even in villages where 80% of the population have left. The people who remain keep the society functioning. I don't know how much that's a misunderstanding about Ukraine as much as maybe it's a misunderstanding about war in general, but I don't know because I've never been to a different country at war. But I think, yeah, the extent to which people keep things working, the extent to which, you know, you can get, you can receive post on the front line. Post, post, uh, post offices will still operate right up to the front line. That always seems to surprise people. But yeah, and other than that, I think the main thing which is still a big misconception is issues around corruption. I'm not a political scientist. I can't talk about how much corruption there is or isn't at the heart of the Ukrainian government. But working with local administrations and local authorities, I, I came in expecting to find so much corruption, expecting to constantly be dealing with corruption, because that is the impression that I had been given of Ukraine by just the Western press. And it just hasn't been an issue and so that's, these are misconceptions, but I guess the realities are more positive, which is nice for once. Ada, just one final question from me before we go to our final thoughts. Well, actually two questions. But the first is, you talked about studying Russian and then um, learning Ukrainian. From your perspective as a, as a Brit, um, um, studying these two languages, what would you say is the, the difference? How, how, what have you found um, in, your, in, in your studies learning both languages? I would say that Ukrainian... Learning them has been a very different experience, partly because I learned Ukrainian living in Ukraine. I learned Russian in university. But I would say that Ukrainian is a far more melodic language. It's a far it's far more poetic. It's it sounds a lot nicer, in my opinion, which may be very biased. But I've yeah, I was I was very surprised by how different they were i guess because we still have a lot of people in the uk and in the west still see them as dialects of one another and starting to learn ukrainian and realizing that no these are just these are very very different they have kind of similar grammar but vocabulary is generally completely different but in the areas that i work people mostly speak sozhik which is like a mixture of russian and ukrainian and i think that is a wonderful thing to have and the fact that these kind of village dialects are all completely unique to each village and is I guess a nice thing about the similarities that the languages do have that they are able to merge in this way to create these individual village dialects for these villages close to the border. And Ada, one last question before we go to our final thoughts. Obviously, you've been speaking about your work with HARP and what you do. How do people find out more about you, find out if they would like to, how to donate? Where, where can they look for information? Um, so if people want to check out our website, it's harp.com. Harp is spelled K-H-A-R-P-P.com. Or we also have Instagram, which is Harp Project, and a Substack, which you can, a newsletter, which you can find through our website and yeah we would appreciate any and all contributions going into this winter as we're just trying to get as many homes repaired as possible while it's still possible while the snow isn't too thick on the ground well thank you so much ada for all of your time thank you for answering our questions we'll come back to you in a minute for your final thoughts but francis sternley can i come to you first thanks david dom asked me to do this week's defense in depth video and Obviously, many people will be aware that this week is the release of a new biopic of Napoleon. And I thought it would be interesting to look at him as a general and some of the ways in which he modernised warfare and the attributes that led him to being so successful, but which also contributed ultimately to his downfall through aspects like modern forces, adaptiveness, a decentralised power structure, military intelligence, leadership. All of these things were pivotal early in his career. And one could argue that some of those elements, and you'll know which ones to which I refer, have been utilised very successfully by the Ukrainians, particularly in the early weeks of the war, which enabled them to score those significant victories. So I look at that in detail, as well as analysing the ways in which Ukraine has seen other 
elements of warfare that we've seen now for centuries be replayed but with perhaps slightly different results. So it's a bit of a different one this week, but I recommend it if you're interested after seeing the film and also generally reflecting on the rules of war and how they remain consistent despite all of the changes that we've seen in recent years. So I recommend it and the link will be in the description. And I can just add, I'm very excited to watch it. I haven't yet. I'm very much looking forward to uh, finding as much as I can disagree with Francis in your analysis of the invasion of Russia in 1812. <laughs> and we can, we can talk about this off air. Uh, thank you very much, Francis. Ada Wordsworth, uh, thank you so much for your time. Would you like this week's very final thoughts? Yes, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on the podcast um, and for allowing me to speak about our work. And also thank you for keeping this podcast going and keeping people aware of what's going on in Ukraine. And I guess my final thoughts is just to implore people to stick with Ukraine, to keep reading, to keep informed, because as you say, you know, this war is unfortunately probably going to go on for quite a while longer. But the least that we can do from the West is to keep aware of what's going on and just keep supporting Ukrainians in any way that they, that we can, especially in the winter, especially as things get so cold there. And so, you know, supporting civilians supporting the military supporting whatever people want to do just doing something to make sure that Ukrainians know that they have the support of the uk of the west i think that's so important that morale boost is so significant ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the telegraph you can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. <laughs>